Good evening. Welcome to Tomball Bible Church. If you're new here, so am I. We're super glad that you're here. I can personally vouch that all these people are really nice. So you should, you should hang out. What we're going to talk about tonight is that there is a king in Israel. And if you're like me, uh, looking at the news is not fun. Turning on your phone and seeing updates on different things is just not an exciting task. It's almost like if you do it out of duty because you got to know what's going on so that you can talk about it and address it and be aware of things. But you're not excited about it because the, the cell phone has just kind of made everybody a journalist with no credentials. And that we can see all of these things. It's not that, that human, humanity in and of ourselves is more depraved, like we're more evil. It's just we can see a whole lot more of it now. And we see it everywhere. And it's just, it's, dis- it's depressing. I mean, I don't, I don't want to get on social media. I don't want to look on these things. I don't want to look up the, turn on the news, get on the website, any of that stuff. Because it's just, it's just, it's just sad. And I just, it's just not fun. And it bums me out. But we're not in any kind of new situation in the world that, where people are kind of doing whatever they want. That's, that's the book of Judges. There's nothing new under the sun. In the book of Judges, it's essentially where we live right now. In the book of Judges, in the Old Testament, in <clears throat> chapter 21, the last chapter, the last verse of the last chapter, and this is a depressing way to end a book of the Bible. It says, In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. That's, if, if, that, if you don't need to know what the rest of the book is about, if you can read the end of the book, that's depressing. And everybody is in this book, in this Old Testament history, they're doing whatever they want to do all the time. If you want to have your own priest and just make him your personal worship leader guy and you can wor- have him worship your idols, sure, you can just do that. The people are just doing that. You want to worship some clothing? Gideon makes this ephod. It's a, it's a clothing of a priest. And then when he dies, people start worshiping it like an idol. They start worshiping all these other idols and they just, they're, they're sacrificing their own children, cutting them up and burning them alive. I mean, it is insanity in the book of Judges because there is no king and everybody's doing whatever they want to do. So this is really what this is. The book of Judges is a glimpse of us for postmodernism. That's the predominant worldview today, that, that all truth is relative or truth doesn't exist at all. That's, that's what we, anybody can do whatever you want to do, as long as what you want to do doesn't infringe on what I want to do. And as long as what you want to do and what you want to believe doesn't infringe on what I want to believe, then you can do whatever you want, because your truth is your truth and my truth is my truth. And I can do what I want to do because I am my own king. And when there is no king in Israel, everybody becomes their own king. They only answer to themselves and no one else. But that's not the way it was supposed to be. Israel needed a king. They needed an authoritative word to somebody just to put a stamp and say, this is right and this is wrong. This is allowed in our society and this is not allowed in our society. They needed that. All peoples need that. All people groups need that. An authoritative word. And that authoritative word can't just say that. It has to be able to back it up. The king can't just say, hey, don't do that and do this. And if people are going crazy and disobeying and and breaking laws, you just go, ah, well, I tried. He's got to be able to back it up, right? That's what what a king does. That's what the king was supposed to do. 
And the Old Testament actually had a prescription for this. In Deuteronomy 17, if you have a Bible, you can turn there with me. If not, it'll be up on the screen. Deuteronomy 17, God actually lays out, this is long before the era of the judges. God says, here's what a king is supposed to look like. Here's what authority looks like. Here's what leadership amongst my people looks like. And in chapter 17 of Deuteronomy, in verse 14, he talks about it can't be somebody who's a foreigner. The king can't be a foreigner. The king can't amass for himself riches or wives or military power or any that kind of stuff. But this is what he's supposed to do. Those are all the don'ts. This is what he's supposed to do. In verse 18, and when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law approved by the Levitical priest and it shall be with him and he shall read it, read in it all the days of his life that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of his law and these statutes and doing them that his heart may not be lifted above his brothers and that he may not turn aside from the commandment either to the right hand or to the left so that he may continue long in his kingdom. He and his children in Israel. That's what the king is supposed to do. Did you realize? We see that the king is supposed to sit down. His first order of duty is to sit down and make a handwritten copy of the law. I I looked it all up. That's 80,000 words. 80,000 handwritten words. And it's got to be in the presence of a priest. Can you imagine being that priest? Having to sit there and watch a guy write 80,000 words, but it had to be done. But it has to be in the presence of a priest so that the king doesn't decide, I'm going to delete that. I don't want to do any of that stuff. I definitely want a lot of chariots. I don't want to make those sacrifices. And I do want this power, so I'm going to write that in. The priest is sitting down there with the real Bible and watching him make a copy of the Bible. That's what's going on. 80,000 words in in the Hebrew Torah, the first five books of the Bible. That's what he had to do. That's his first order of business. And it has to be with this priest so that there's a check and balance of power. Because it's not supposed to be this division or one kind of guy up on his own. And that comes to play in Second Chronicles 26 when Uzziah is king. And he says, I'm going to go into the temple and do whatever I want to do. I'm going to go before the Lord however I want to do that. And he does that. And the priest says, no, you're not. And then God afflicts him. There's a check and balance of power within God's people. The king is supposed to be leading out in this spiritual life, in this obedience to God, because he's made this copy of the law, and he's supposed to keep it with him and read it every day. And it's supposed to do four things for the people and for him. Did you catch what those things are? To teach him to fear the Lord and to keep the words of his laws and his statutes and doing them. That's to build righteousness in the king. Because God's not assuming whoever gets in that power, that position of power, he's going to be an awesome guy. He's going to have it all together because he's a human, so he'll be just fine. He's going to say, no, that guy's going to be a sinner. He's going to want to do whatever he wants to do. So I'm going to make him study my book all the time, every day, so that he builds righteousness and godliness within himself. Not him building it, but that he is following God and building it in him. And it's to keep him humble. Do you notice that? That his heart may not be lifted above his brothers. Because when you're constantly going before God and his word, you have no more pride left. All you do is see yourself as deficient of everything that God is and everything that God has spoken. And you say, wow, I shouldn't be in this position at all. (laughs) I am most unfit to do this. 
That's what the Christian life is supposed to end up doing, right? The closer you get to Christ, the more you realize you're not like him and the more in, in humility you're driven into. That's what it's supposed to do for this king. To keep him humble. And then the last thing is to do is to lead the kingdom according to God's directives so that he may not turn aside from the commandment either to the right hand or to the left. He's going to shoot straight down the middle and obey God's word. That's what he's supposed to do. Because if that kind of king is there, if that kind of king is in place in Judges, then the people are blessed. The people are protected. The people are obeying God, not incurring his wrath. And the people do eventually ask for a king. In 1 Samuel 8, they ask for a king, but they ask for the wrong kind. They say, we want a king so that we look like everybody else and so that he can go and then beat up everybody else. That's, that's what they wanted. We want a king that looks like us and looks like everybody else. We can be like the nations, they say. We want to be like them. Not like you, God, per se, but like, like them that we see out there. So this is what they wanted. They wanted to succeed as God's people using the world's methods. That doesn't really work out when you say, I... I want to do, God, we want to be your people still, but we want to do it our way, and we want you to bless it. That's what they asked for in 1 Samuel 8. And God says, all right, you can have Saul. And Saul is terrible, right? And the kings go on and on and on, and none of them are any good. But they wanted to be powerful, right? They wanted them to fight their battles. They wanted to be their muscle. They, they, this is not the primary role of the king. Do you remember Deuteronomy 17? The primary role of the king is to study God's word and to make sure the people don't stray from it. That he's in God's word. Yes, he does military functions, but that's not what he does first. God is more than able to conquer any enemy that anybody could ever have. So the king doesn't need to go and build up and beef up a military. The the leader, the people of God, doesn't need to do that because God can do all of that. All throughout the Old Testament, most of the time how God wins battles, he just confuses the enemy and makes them kill themselves. So therefore, you don't really need your own army if they're going to take themselves out, right? So that this is the king is supposed to lead the people spiritually. But God go ahead, went ahead and gave them what they wanted. And the kings who come, they don't do it. They don't do what they're supposed to do. Before Israel, so Israel gets taken into captivity. Before they get taken into captivity, kingdom splits and they have 43 kings. 43 different kings, if you add up the kings in the southern kingdom and the northern kingdom, all the same people just divided in the middle, there's 43 of them. How many were actually righteous and followed God? Seven. Seven out of 43. For those of you who are mathematically encumbered, such as I, I used my iPhone to calculate that out, that's 16% righteousness rate. 16% of your kings follow God. Then you got three or four who kind of waffle back and forth, three or four, depending on how to define you, what's bad enough and what's good enough. But only seven out of 43 kings follow God at all. Things get so bad by the time that Judah, the the nation of Judah gets to its 16th king. They have 16 kings. That, That king is eight years old. So things are bad when you're given the hands, you're given the keys to the nation to a toddler, almost. Like you say, hey kid, drive this thing. He gets in there, he's eight years old, and by that time, they don't even know where their Bible is. It's just gone. And then one day, and that king's name is Josiah, one day, the high priest is in the temple cleaning it out, doing a little bit of spring cleaning, making it some repairs, and they go, hey, check it out, look what we found. 
The Bible, huh? Can you imagine that happened here? Bear's cleaning around. And he goes, hey, I found the Bible. Should we use this or not? So Josiah gets the Bible and he's like, oh, my goodness. And he hears it read and he hits his face and he says, we haven't been doing any of this stuff. So he's a good king. But then it goes in the tubes after him. <laughs> so the kings that the people wanted for themselves, they used the people for their own selfish ends. That's what they did. They, they used the people. They led them into pagan idolatry. They partnered them by making treaties with pagan foreign people who did not respect or love or serve the God of the Bible. And they led them into utter turmoil. They ruled by human wisdom and human pragmatism. They were the opposite of a Deuteronomy 17 king. That's what they had for forever. That's what they had for the entire era, for the bulk of our Old Testaments. That's what they had. And they brought God's judgment onto the people, not his blessing. And the series we've been doing this December is called The Coming King. And then, in Judah's history, in Israel's history, a king comes. A king comes. When Caesar Augustus is emperor of Rome and Quirinius is the governor of the land, a king is born in Israel. A king is born in Israel. If you look at Matthew 2, verse 1 through 6. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, Where is he who was born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king, the pagan king, Heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him, and assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler, a king, who will shepherd my people, Israel. A king was born in Bethlehem. The king has come. There can no longer be said as in the days of Judges that there is no king in Israel and everybody's doing what's right in their own eyes. There is a king in Israel. He was born then. And the the Magi, they show up and they're like, hey, where's the king? And the current king says, what? Because he hasn't read his Bible. He's a pagan. He's an Edomite from from the lineage of Esau, not of Jacob. Not of the chosen people. He doesn't know his Bible. He says, where is this guy supposed to be born? And they go, oh yeah, here in Micah it tells us the ruler, the ruler, the king is going to be born in Bethlehem. That's where he's going to be from. And this king is good. That there is going to be direction for the people of Israel. There will be protection for God's people. It can no longer be said of Israel's king as it was repeated over and over and over in the books of 2 Kings and 1 Kings and 1 Chronicles and 2 Chronicles in our Old Testament that the king did evil in the eyes of the Lord. That's one of the most repeated phrases in those four books of the Bible and it can no longer be said that because Jesus never did that. He never did evil in the eyes of the Lord because this king can't do evil in the eyes of the Lord because he is the Lord. This king is God. That word we say a lot at Christmas, Emmanuel, that word means God with us. 
It doesn't mean person with us, or prophet with us, or merely priest with us, or even merely just king with us. It means God with us. And this, this one, will be the perfect prophet, the perfect priest, and the perfect king. That's what he's here to do. This, he is Lord of Lords, and is no longer going to take the people and direct them into folly or direct them into rebellion or sin. Because Revelation 19.11, when this king comes back again, as we are waiting on right now, his name is called Faithful and True. Because he doesn't lie, and he doesn't make things up. He is God. This king, born to Mary and Joseph at Christmas... He's going to grow up to say things like this. Hang with me through these quotes and listen to this if you'd like a king like that. Matthew eleven, twenty-eight 28 through 30. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. And you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. When the people were clamoring for a king, Samuel said, Hey, he's going to be a burden on you guys. He's going to demand your sons for his armies and your daughters to serve in his castle. And he's going to burden you. He's going to demand taxes. And Jesus says, My yoke is easy and my burden is light. I'm going to give you rest. I'm not going to oppress you and use you. He'll also say in Matthew 6, 33, But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. So he's not saying, I'm going to take from you. He's saying, hey, seek me first and I will handle literally every other detail that you could ever have to manage in your lifetime. You're not going to be starving. You're, not going, to, you're going to have whatever you need. Just seek first my kingdom and my righteousness. I'm not taking from you. I'm giving to you. Matthew 6, 33. He's going to also say this in Mark 10, 45. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. This king models servant leadership. This king is not saying, hey, do everything for me. I am the grand potentate. I am an authoritarian government. Do for me and I'll do whatever I want to do. He says, I served all the way till the end. Where can you look at Jesus' life and say, that's the point where he stopped serving right there. That's the point where he said, too far, I'm not going to do that, that's too much for me. There, there is no spot, because he does that all the way till he dies. So he served all the way till the end. That's our king. He's modeling his servant leadership. And then he says, this is what's going to mark my kingdom in John 13, 34, and 35. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. And here's the kicker. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So how are we going to look like our king is loving one another? Not quarreling with one another. Our, his kingdom, Jesus' kingdom, is not going to be ruled by natural selection or survival of the fittest. His kingdom is going to be identified. They're going to know that you are of this kingdom if you love each other. That's what this kingdom looks like. But he's also very clear, this king Jesus, about the nature of his reign and the response from humanity. In John three eighteen, he says, Whoever believes in him, talking of himself, is not condemned, but... Whoever does not believe is condemned already 
because he has not believed in the name of the Son of God. So this king does not promise peace to rebels. This king does not concede to the rebellious. See, other kings would have done that. You're not obeying me? Okay, that's fine. Then I'm just going to say that what you're doing is okay. Or you're, you're trying to kill me or you're trying to fight against me. I'll just kind of cower down and try to make a treaty with you to get you on my side. Jesus is not going to say that. He's going to be very clear about the requirements of his kingdom. That you believe in me, you are not condemned. But if you do not have faith in me, then you're condemned already. Very clear. That's the kind of parent, that's the kind of teacher, that's the kind of boss that everybody wants. This is how you please me. This is how you anger me. That's a good king. A king does that. He also says in Matthew 7, verse 13 and 14, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. But the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Jesus is not going to bait and switch us and try to say, hey, everything's going to be awesome in here. If you'll follow me, get a new car. You lose that nagging 10 pounds and you stop being bald. Come on in. Everything's going to be awesome all the time, always. He's going to say, the way is hard and narrow out front. So if you're thinking about walking up a mountain, most of us, I'm definitely going to choose the big, wide, paved path that goes with like a, a thousand switchbacks, right? So that I'm never walking uphill too much. But this way is narrow. It's not well trod. It's harder to go. And he's going to say that right out front. No deception. No saying, hey, I'm going to lead you guys. It's going to be great and easy. Like many of the kings did before him. And then they turn on the people and they devour them. Jesus said, hey, straight up, I'm going to love you. Your burden's going to be light, but the way is narrow. And the road is hard. But come with me. And this king, he's going to do exactly what a Deuteronomy 17 king is supposed to do. Matthew 5, verse 17 and 18. He says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. When you hear that, think Bible. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass away from the law until all is accomplished. This king will not forsake the word of God. Because we read earlier, John 1, that was up on the screen. John calls him the word of God. And the word was with God and the word was God. So Jesus is not here to say, I'm throwing out the playbook and starting something totally new. He's saying... Don't think that I came to get rid of this. I came to fulfill it. None of this is going to go away until every dot, every iota is fully fulfilled. He's going to uphold the totality of God's word. He's not going to venture from it to the right hand or to the left. Not by any means. So we can trust him because we can trust God. This, this is the message of Christmas. That there is a king in Israel. And that this king is not going to abandon us. God has not left us to devour each other in self-destructive kingship. Where everybody's their own king and doing whatever they see fit in their own eyes. That we have a king and he has been born and he is called the Prince of Peace and the Mighty God. That that's, that that's who he is. So, so, so while out there, 
It looks like the era of the judges and everyone is doing what's right in their own eyes. That's certainly true. But in here, in here, not this physical building, but amongst these people that make up the church, it is not the era of the judges. We have a king and we are not doing what is right in our own eyes. That we follow one. We, Ephesians 5 says that we have a singular divine head over us. And a body can't do anything that the head doesn't tell it to do and it still be a healthy body. A healthy body only does what the head says to do. And that's us. We have that. We have order because we have a Bible. And our head is the word made flesh on Christmas, born to Mary. That that's, that's what we are. That's what we live in. Because see, the church is called the ecclesia. That's the Greek word. All that means is the called out ones. So we look at our phones and Twitter and CNN and all this stuff. And the world is chaos and it's burning down around us. But not in here. Because we are called out from that. We look different than that. We're not a different version of that. But we have a gracious and a just king leading us, protecting us, providing for us. That's what we have and that's what we live in. He calls us to take up our cross daily and die to ourselves and live for him because he took up his cross, truly died to himself and then died really for us. That's what he's done. So this is why the church just can't look different than the world. We can't just be merely different We can't just be a variant lifestyle. Humanity is at no shortage of varieties of life philosophies. We aren't offering here in the church just another spin on life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. No, we we offer something divinely and profoundly better than that. So as a church, we are not just different. We are better. And not better in an elitist sense as in get up on my level and rise up to me. No better as in this life, this king, this order that we live in is better. It's not just different. And we're not just offering, hey, here's another spin on the American dream or the life in Western civilization. We're not offering another kind of lifestyle. We're offering life eternal. That's what our king offers, not just your best life now. Your best life won't be now. He'll tell you that straight out. Every page of the Bible almost. Your best life won't be now. Paul says, suffer hardships with me. That's not a great recruiting thing. Unless you're trying to recruit people to a battleship and not a cruise ship. Because if you recruit people to a battleship, but you call it a cruise ship, when you say, hey, pick up your guns and let's fight, they're going to say, what? I was here to lounge and do nothing. And they're going to get mad and they're going to leave. But if you say, hey, this is going to be a battle. It's going to be hard. But guess what? We're going to win. Because we have a divine king who cannot lose. We have a divine king who will always protect us, who will always do what's best for us, no matter what we may interpret it as. It is always best for us. That's our king. That's the king of the church. And this king was born as a man at Christmas. And that's what we celebrate at Christmas is that king. And we worship him in this season not because he's going to offer us peace in this world or prosperity in this world. Because he's going to offer us life eternal. 
And in exchange for that, he doesn't want your money. He doesn't demand a barter or a trade. He just wants your life. He just wants a life submitted to him. So in reality, he wants all of you, but he wants none of the stuff that you can pay with. So you're going to come empty-handed before this king, born as a baby at Christmas 2,000 years ago, and say, I have nothing, but I want to be of your people. And I want you to be my divine head, and I want to be a part of your body. So that's the king that we worship. So I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to continue worshiping. Father, thank you so much for telling us of this king. Thank you so much for becoming incarnate to sacrifice yourself to satisfy yourself. We can never pay, we can never earn, we can never bring about by our own means. Thank you for letting us know that very clearly in your word. Thank you for not being a king like any we have ever seen who has ulterior motives and is ultimately serving himself, but that you gave yourself up for us. And Father, thank you for telling us that the way is narrow so that we're not confused when the path is hard. But we do know that you are with us, low even to the end of the age. And we look forward to that end because we celebrate the beginning and we do that this season. We love you and we thank you in Christ's name. Amen.